Hi, this is Stacy, the Baby Maker Robert. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. I'm at the 2016 Bioceuticals Research Symposium. Right now I'm talking with Dr. David Perlmutter and I think it would be inappropriate for me to read your bio, your bio. So I'm going to ask you, can you give us a synopsis, because you've done so much, can you give us a synopsis of what your education, your qualifications are and how you practice, please? I'd be delighted to. I am a board-certified neurologist. I'm also a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and I've written a few bo uh, books along the way, and so I'm a, a three-time New York Times best-selling author. And interestingly, I, I just noted this morning that um, my uh, two of my books, uh, Brain Maker and Grain Brain, are both, uh, they're number one and number two, uh, medical nutrition in Australia, where you and I are right now. Mm -hmm. So I do spend a lot of time writing and teaching uh, the, the word doctor in Latin doesn't mean healer, it means teacher. And so I've take, sort of embraced the notion for my life that the mission is really to teach uh, both lay population and professionals as much as I possibly can. What was the first point at which you started to realize as a neurologist, a medico, within that pretty tight box of neurology, when you started to go, hang on, something's not right? I, I think I realized that even before I was a neurologist, I've always right. been a pain in the butt. <laughs> and in my chosen profession of physician, even in medical school, I think I was always out of step because it always seemed to me that we were missing the boat. Uh, modern medicine treats diseases. There's nothing about keeping people healthy. Nothing, yeah. And that was, uh, you know, my chosen field uh, then became more selective in, in brain disorders, but it's all, it was more focused on how do we keep people healthy in the first place? It seemed to make sense to me. Uh, uh, John Kennedy said that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. And as I became a neurologist, I joined a mainstream practice and in fact stayed with them for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, doing the normal things that a neurologist does, basically treating symptoms but ignoring the actual cause of illness, uh, focusing on the smoke but ignoring the fire. And ultimately, I became just too disenchanted with that approach, uh, feeling that that was myopic, that I went out on my own and built my clinic and really focused on trying to understand mechanistically uh, what was going on here. What was this thing called Alzheimer's for which there was no treatment and no cure, affecting now 5.4 million Americans, here in Australia 353,000, uh, and there is no treatment. And it, it is uh, compelling to me 
that our most well-respected peer-reviewed journals are replete with citations indicating that lifestyle choices have a huge role to play in determining who does or who doesn't get that situation, and no one's talking about it. Mm. So I, I fell into that niche of being that person who would then raise awareness that, you know what, our day-to-day -day lifestyle choices are fundamentally important in determining the brain's destiny. Do you ever remember a time back in your um, practice as an orthodox neurologist, questioning all the time, I get it, but did you ever see patients who, the, this is a patient who had a neurological disorder, but might have been on a little bit of a different diet, like a vegetarian diet or something like that. And you went, when you saw their path results or their progression of their disease, you went, huh, that's not quite as bad as what it should be compared to the run of the mill diet. That we Absolutely, see. And, and I really did my best to be sensitive to that sort of uh, experience. You know, that's anecdotal, and they say that the plural of anecdote is data. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always maintained that I've learned more from my patients than they have from me. Uh, every patient encounter has been a teaching opportunity from them to me. And then when you see that type of situation, uh, to explore in the medical research as to uh, literature why that might be happening really was very, very revealing. Uh, you know, you mentioned vegetarian diet, which I think has its merits. But uh, just to take that apart for just a moment, mm -hmm. I, I believe that you know, there's a huge movement to embrace the notion that vegetarianism is a very healthful diet for humans. And I would indicate that we need to look at that because by and large vegetarians are not getting enough dietary fat. Uh, they have risks for things like low vitamin D, mineral deficiencies, B12 deficiency, etc. So I think making the choice for vegetarianism for whatever reason, uh, you know, we could look at those reasons if they are um, uh, spiritual reasons or if they are uh, physiological metabolic reasons or whatever, there are some uh, ideas that need to be presented to make that a viable choice. Uh, there are, um, and there's certainly a precedent uh, of humans eating animal products dating back at least 2.4 million years. Uh, that said, our genome has really adapted to respond to that type of diet. And further, our microbiome, that 100 trillion organisms that resides within our intestines, has also been refined to respond to that type of diet. And it doesn't mean uh, going hog wild on meat. Uh, most of our diet should still be vegetable, should still be plant-derived. Salient point, and indeed a point you made earlier about uh, medicine being myopic what went on in my mind was Dr. Lauren Cordain, mm. <laughs> the, the public father, if you like, of yes. the paleo diet. Um, and his initial call to action, if you like, was to look at myopia um, and look at the incidents and, and what, were the, what was uh, helping to progress myopia and, or indeed cause it in humans. Um, I had a conversation with him. So it's interesting you say that about being myopic. Um, so re with regards to the paleo diet, People often confuse that as being a meat-based diet, but that's not what we found. I agree with you, and uh, people have often uh, been critical of uh, my book, Grain Brain, saying, oh, you know, that's all about eating meat. It's nothing more than a, an updated Atkins diet. Well, um, you know, the, the, the diet that we are talking about that is most salubrious is the diet that is mostly vegetarian, that adds meat if that's your choice, but tries to cover the bases in terms of what you need. You need protein. Uh, can it be plant-derived? Yeah, it can be. But you need fat. 
and that is you know kind of topsy turvy mm. with what we've been told. Mm. Uh, the brain is you know, and especially saturated fat. That's right, <laughs> saturated fat. How could we be having this conversation <laughs> ten years ago? They would have hauled us off with <laughs> with right. meat hooks, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but but that said, uh, we, we recognize fat as a fundamental reason uh, that has allowed humans to survive, and so we could have this conversation today. You know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as hunter-gatherers, but the reality is we were scavengers for most of our time on this planet, Le eating whatever was left after the, the wolves and the hyenas and the vultures had their fill. So we ate bone marrow, basically break open the bones and eat the marrow, which is a, you know, again, high-fat kind of diet. So yeah. fat is back. Mm should never have left, and it left for economic reasons, which was, is sad, it's pathetic, basically. But this notion of um, whole grain goodness, I think, is strongly being challenged, and with good reason, uh, with good literature coming out, really challenging the notion that when we base our diet, uh, our caloric uh, maximums on um, carbohydrate resources, we're setting the stage for trouble. I'll go into what we call meat a little bit later, but let's look at, I want to cover grains. Okay. Why grains? What tr triggered your mind to go, it's grains? Because I'm very interested in grasses per se as being this, why we react so allergically to them. Well, good point. Grains uh, are basically, by definition, the seeds of grass. And that sounds uh, really, you know, it paints a beautiful picture, the waving fields of grass, <laughs> we're harvesting the seeds, and everything is wonderful. Uh, but, you know, our ancestors, uh, and in fact, for 99.4% of our time walking this planet, there were no wheat fields, there were no uh, grasses growing that we would harvest in big baskets and then refine and create foods. It didn't exist. Uh, but So the grain-based foods are, uh, a, a problem for us, at least for three reasons. We'll talk about the gluten issue, those grains that are gluten-containing, wheat, uh, uh, wheat, barley, and uh, rye. The second issue is that, by and large, grain-based uh, based foods are profound, concentrated sources of detrimental carbohydrate. And the third issue that relates to grains is genetic modification. And the argument with the third contention might be, well, wheat, uh, globally isn't generally genetically modified. The big issue with GMO as it relates to food, corn, uh, soy, uh, etc., and as it uh, does secondarily relate to wheat, is because GMO is by and large um, a, a situation that we have to allow farmers to spray foods with an herbicide called glyphosate. Yeah. And it is the glyphosate that presents the problem. When the World Health Organization in April of 2014, 2015, uh, publishing in the journal The Lancet, you and I yes. would agree a well-respected journal, yes. calls glyphosate not possible, but a probable human carcinogen, mm. we have to take notice. Because you know we're looking at 1.35 million metric tons of this stuff being put in our food supply uh, annually. So it is that herbicide that farmers are using on the genetically modified crops. They're genetically modified to allow the glyphosate to be used, kills the weeds, but the, the corn and the soy are fine. Well, how do we extend that to wheat, which is not genetically modified? Well, 
in the wisdom of the manufacturers of glyphosate, it was uh, determined that they could leverage the notion that glyphosate would help ripen wheat or desiccate it, being, uh, an, uh, giving the ability of the farmers to get that product to market more readily and have a higher profitability. So wheat, at least in America, is aggressively also treated with glyphosate. The next question is, why is it such a problem? And why would the World Health Organization make this correlation between consumption of glyphosate, which is found on our grains, and risk for cancer? Well, it turns out that glyphosate changes our microbiome, alters the array of organisms that live within us, that mediate, for example, our ability to detoxify our environment, detoxify the very things that we're exposed to. One, uh, one idea, you know, the notion of, of antibiotics being related to um, cancer is not new. There was a report in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2004 that demonstrated a dose-responsive uh, issue as it relates to women exposed to antibiotics and risk for breast cancer. And their conclusion, here we are 16 years later, 12 years later, uh, was that uh, these changes were brought on by changes in the microbiome. Uh, the detoxification pathways of the microbiome being altered, uh, the changes in how the microbiome deals with hormones, for example, being altered. So there's a long-standing precedent that relates glyphosate exposure uh, to risk for cancer. Now you're wondering probably, well, you just quoted something that dealt with antibiotics and now we're right back to glyphosate. And it turns out that the manufacturer of glyphosate actually patented glyphosate as an antibiotic years ago. Right. I, I actually use that patent, an image of it, in my presentations. So it's important to note that all of the discussion that people have about the dangers of antibiotics, overusage of antibiotics, which the World Health Organization has characterized as one of the top two threats to human health of this decade, all of those discussions about overusage of antibiotics in our livestock, for example, in the doctor's offices, relate back to this glyphosate when you connect the fact that glyphosate is actually an antibiotic. Your book, Grain Brain, especially, uh, educates patients on, on how they can change their diet to exclude wheat, but incorporate other pulses, grains, other sources of complex carbohydrates. But it also ties in very well with neurological disorders. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think it's very interesting with regards to things like autism, but there's a myriad of other complaints. Can you no go question. through those? And, you know, uh, when I subtitled Grain Brain by stating uh, how wheat, carbs, and uh, sugar are your brain's uh, uh, enemies, mm. uh, it was bold, and people still to this day challenge it, but I think the medical literature is really quite clear. The Mayo Clinic, publishing in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, highly regarded uh, study, uh, indicated that those individuals in their study that favored carbohydrates in their diet uh, had about an 80% increased risk of becoming demented as they were followed based upon their food frequency questionnaire. Whereas those who had a higher fat resource for their calories had a 48% reduction in risk for de developing dementia. So that really is powerful information that fat is good for the brain. When the New England Journal of Medicine in September 2013 published a very interesting report looking at several thousand individuals and, and 
looked at them from the perspective of initially their cognitive function, baseline neuropsychometric testing, and one other test. What was that? Their fasting blood sugar. Followed these individuals for 6.7 years and found that those individuals who had even subtle elevations of blood sugar had a profound increased risk for becoming demented not at levels to characterize diabetes, but at just subtle elevations above norm. Uh, it really makes you recognize that we've got to rein in our blood sugar and we rein in our blood sugar uh, by lowering our dietary consumption of sugar and carbohydrates. Now, you know, subsequently, and even prior to that, we were seeing reports that focused on uh, glycation of, of proteins, on hemoglobin A1C, for example. Mm -hmm demonstrating that uh, that is a perfect marker of rate of hippocampal atrophy. As the, uh, the A1C climbs, you see further reduction in size of the brain's memory center, which correlates with Alzheimer's. So we know that when we glycate proteins, when proteins bind to, to sugars, uh, they it presents a situation where increased uh, free radical production happens and increased inflammation is happening as well. And certainly it's not just hemoglobin that is uh, glycated. So an array of uh, proteins are glycated. It happens to be that A1C is what we measure. But uh, even the, um, and even carrier proteins like low-density lipoprotein can become glycated. And as such, when it's glycated, uh, it is oxidized. Glycation increases free radical mediated stress, and oxidized LDL is a real problem. Uh, it is the oxidized LDL that paves the way for atherogenesis, that is actually really causative as it relates to, for example, narrowing of the, of the coronary arteries. The cholesterol is the response. The cholesterol are the firemen that are coming uh, to the injury to fight the fire. And yet, with the observation of cholesterol in the plaque, uh, that motivated the focus of lowering cholesterol uh, to uh, as some sort of bizarre treatment uh, for treating uh, coronary artery disease. And, you know, the issue for me is that there's this incredible inverse relationship between um, Alzheimer's risk and cholesterol, fasting cholesterol. Uh, lower cholesterol levels are associated with a dramatic increased risk for Alzheimer's. Cholesterol is good for the brain. Uh, it is an antioxidant in the brain. Um, and, you know, beyond the brain, you know, systemically, we need cholesterol. Uh, we need the resource from which our bodies manufacture vitamin D. We need the raw material for which our, our bodies are able to manufacture, uh, from which uh, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, and even cortisol. So that said, uh, we have to, uh, you know, I think our conversation right now may appear iconoclastic to many, and hopefully it will. The the thing that confuses me is, um, uh, and I'm going to ask you about it, is was that climb in HbA1c, was that adjusted for age? And what I'm meaning here is younger people, or let's say familial hypercholesterolemia, if they also saw a rise in HbA1c combined with their hypercholesterolemia, did they see that uh, reduction in hippocampal area? And the second part of it, there's five parts of this <laughs> question. The other one is, um, you talked, you spoke about um, that we need cholesterol, and and yet um, lower cholesterol, um, uh, you haven't got the base nutrient to supply to make brain tissue. But then we get changes in rise in raised cholesterol, 
even though that's what we use to make that base tissue. So it's, it seems to be that it's not just the level, but it's what you combine it with and what you do to it. Okay, Let, let's go back to the first question, mm. and that was, uh, was, is there an age adjustment made on the studies that relate a A1C, uh, glycated uh, hemoglobin, uh, to hippocampal atria? And what the study did was took a population and basically correlated uh, um, the metrics of the size of the hippocampus with the A1C. So it wasn't as if a group was chosen and then followed over time as they gotcha. changed their A1Cs. And, you know, as far as the second question uh, goes, I think that um, the, these correlative studies with uh, individuals having higher cholesterol being at risk for coronary artery disease are weak. Uh, and I think that those individuals with these, the higher levels um, that, that we've got to really correct for some other variables that are not looked at, uh, both in terms of lifestyle and in terms of biometrics. It's very hard for a, a, a large study especially to look at multiple factors and certainly those that are synergistic or, or combinatory um, yes. um, in effect. But, and where I'm going with this is what I mentioned before, you know, the combination of um, sugar with high carbs, with wheat, Absolutely. with changed fats. Um, how do you start to look at this sort of thing from an integrative perspective without losing the plot, if you like, without... Well, by and large, the plot has uh, focused until now on monotherapy, mm. uh, on the notion that, you know, at the end of the line, you see uh, deficiency of acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter in certain parts of the brain that seems to correlate with Alzheimer's, that is seen in the Alzheimer's brain post-mortem, for example. And the, the very myopic approach, which is maintained to the tune of multiple billions of dollars globally in product sales, in pharmaceutical product sales, still is focused on the so-called cholinergic hypothesis. In the great wisdom of uh, the, the pharmaceutical chemistry, it was thought if we could inhibit the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine, that should be very handy in the treatment of Alzheimer's because we'll have more acetylcholine and that will fix the problem. Well, that's where the cholinesterase inhibitor drugs uh, came into play. Right. And uh, it turns out they're, they're ineffective. In over 400 studies, they've been proven useless. Uh, and from another perspective, as you and I talk about that, you have to realize that this deficiency of acetylcholine is at the end of a very long cascade of events that pave the way for ultimately apoptosis of those cholinergic neurons and, and therefore loss of the receptors and the transmitter. So we have to take steps back and say, let's stop focusing on the smoke and look at the fire. What's going on in the first place? And it, it comes back multiple steps uh, to the notion that Alzheimer's is an inflammatory disorder. And if we look at the genesis of inflammation in human physiology, then we start to look at things like glycation of proteins, at uh, free radical-mediated stress, for example, brought on by uh, elevation of homocysteine, which strongly correlates to Alzheimer's risk. Uh, homocysteine, through its degradation to homocysteic acid, is a powerful uh, enhancement of free radical-mediated pathology, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And you know, just to focus on homocysteine for one moment, then we'll look at a broader picture. Uh, why then wouldn't there have been such an outcry to pay attention to lowering homocysteine uh, because we see such a strong correlation with high levels of homocysteine in 
uh, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia as well, for that matter. And I think the reason is, is there's nothing proprietary out there. You and I well know uh, that the provision of methyl donors, B6, B12, uh, folic acid, um, et cetera, uh, is what we do as integrative practitioners to help lower homocysteine. But you can't own that. It, can't not, it is not patentable. And it brings to you know, mind the, the idea that, you know, again, mainstream medicine is focused on monotherapy. As it relates to Alzheimer's, it is uh, cholinesterase inhibition uh, or memantine. Uh, but that said, NMDA receptor modul modulation, uh, neither of which is effective, and then even in combination, there is no efficacy. But that said, when we take a broader perspective and recognize that you didn't get into this mess in, through, going one, through going through one door, yep. there are multiple factors, as you alluded to just a moment ago, of blood sugar, of inactivity, uh, of stress with elevation of cortisol, of uh, lipid issues, of vitamin deficiency, of mineral toxicity, of hormone imbalance that can conspire and ultimately manifest in a disease that we call, by a name, Alzheimer's. Uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, at UCLA and also at the Buck Institute in uh, Northern California, published in the journal Aging last year, a, uh, a demonstration that when you pay attention to 36 variables, that he was able to actually reverse Alzheimer's in nine of 10 patients. Putting them back to work, they're writing checks, they're going to drive in their car, uh, balancing their checkbooks, uh, and uh, so, you know, the brain is very plastic. The brain is very recoverable. Uh, and that's maybe the dirty little secret no one wants to talk about. You just took away my next question. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I was basically talking about neuroplasticity. I was recently speaking with uh, Dr. Andrew Heyman, another speaker at the symposium. And he was talking about his work with what we call adrenal fatigue and how we should be really thinking about um, what causes the cortisol to be, let's say, ineffective. I'm gonna, that's a broad brushstroke. Um, and then to treat with interventions that enable neuroplasticity. So apart from the mind games, the ways that you can train your body to enable neuroplasticity, what sort of supplements do you use? What sort of foods do you use that can help well, us along? So neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, the growth of new brain cells, are all highly dependent upon brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. And in fact, there's a study that was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association about seven months ago that demonstrated a wonderful correlation between low levels of BDNF and increased risk for dementia. So we understand that when your body is, uh, is experiencing the effects of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, the brain is growing new brain cells, which in, in my day was thought to not exist. And not only that, but the cells are protected against traumas, be they chemical, be they physical. Uh, but in addition, uh, the connection of one brain cell to the next, neuroplasticity, is also enhanced. So we need to do everything we possibly can to enhance brain-derived neurotrophic mm, factor. Yeah. And by far and away, the most powerful supplement that you can take right now 
to, to boost your BDNF level is called aerobic exercise. Right. There you go. Uh, it's not you know something you buy at the health food store. What you got to buy are a pair of running, running shoes <laughs> or whatever. But aerobic exercise. Shorts are optional. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> want to go there. But, uh, but that said, uh, a recent publication in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease just last month demonstrated, again, by the same research team that uh, identified this uh, several years ago, that in those individuals who expend the largest number of energy calories uh, doing aerobics, there's actually an increased size over time in the volumetric measurement of their hippocampus. Their hippocampus is growing with time. Their cognitive performance improves and their BDNF levels increase. Dr. Erickson, University of Pittsburgh. So there's no patentable medication that can do that and yet most people have never heard of what we've just discussed. There's a way to reverse the shrinkage of your brain's memory center and to regain memory function, and it's called aerobic exercise. DHA, the omega-3 docosahexaenoic acid as well, to some degree enhances uh, BDNF production. We know that BDNF production is diminished in the presence of inflammation, and there does uh, seem to be a correlation between higher levels of lipopolysaccharide in laboratory animals, yep. that marker of inflammation and gut permeability, I might add, and lower levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factors. So it isn't that challenging. Comes back right to the gut. Yep, so, sure does. But the issue I have with, I, I guess, treating the gut is because we like to think of a supplement as a, as a probiotic, but the, the problem that I see is that certainly in Australia, we're restricted to, I think it's 14 species of probiotic organisms, many of them based on milk. Um, some of them based on, on plants, but we're certainly restricted when you look at the plethora of organisms in the microbiota. And interestingly, interestingly some of the research that's coming out now with, for instance, um, species like Acomantia mucinifolia and um, Fecalibacterium proudsnitii, where we don't have these as probiotics. So we need to be looking at food. Then you look at diet. You've got to take away wheat. What sort of diets are useful? Well, let me just go back. Uh, yeah, there are 10,000 or so species of, of uh, organisms that, that have been identified. Mm -hmm. And it would seem at first blush to be compelling to think that we're going to be able to replete each and every one of those organisms. But I think on the other side, we do identify a core group of species that have been uh, the focus of most of the research. We know that Lactobacillus rhamnosus and Lactobacillus plantarum, for example, have key roles to play in maintaining gut barrier integrity, yep. uh, for example. Uh, and, you know, as it relates to other organisms, like you mentioned, Fecalibacterium prausnitzii, which is seen to be at lower levels in uh, inflammatory bowel disease and, interestingly, lower levels in MS, uh, that the the use of oh, you want to yeah, go there? Well, we'll go no, there. No, no, okay. I just that was I just had a light bulb. Oh, good, I like all. that. I can see it actually. <laughs> but that uh, other probiotic species will actually work to enhance levels right. of fecal bacterium right. uh, prausnitzii, although you're not specifically giving uh, fecal bacteria prausnitzii, which, you know, uh, just to take a step back, is interestingly a, a clostridial species, and mm. here we have been, you know, sort of Damn. trained to. Yeah. Damn the Clostridial species. When we think of Clostridia, we think of, 
you know, Clostridium tetanus, Clostridium tetani, Clostridium uh, perfringens, Clostridium botulinum, uh, Clostridium difficile. Devastating. You know, these are the, we, they're, they're, they're enemies. Yeah. And, you know, and the reality is your body is loaded with Clostridial species right now. Mm. 10 to 40% of the bacterial species in your body are in the Firmicutes group of the Clostridial uh, subtype. Mm. So, uh, and you very likely have a C. diff in your body being held in check by the fact that you have good balance of organisms. Rock the apple cart, uh, change the balance, and certain things will overgrow. When you don't nurture the garden, you're going to get a lot more weeds. So, um, but you had this light bulb go off. <laughs> so, I did. So, with regards to the use of these genetically modified wheat uh, that are now loaded with herbicides, which act as an antibiotic, aren't we then now just promoting this upsetting of the apple cart to lead to this may be a silent infection that Andrew Heyman talks about as one of these issues that if you just give some cortisol, you're gonna just um, have a runaway issue with uh, nerve damage and, and ill health prolonging Yes, I mean, your entrance into this feed-forward cycle can come at multiple points. You can jump onto the carousel wherever you like. But, you know, as a point of clarification, we're not really talking about genetic modification of wheat. Nonetheless, it's sprayed with glyphosate, which is, uh, according to its manufacturer, they hold the patent for it, an antibiotic. So all of our discussion with reference to the overusage of antibiotics, the inappropriate usage, the use of antibiotic in the very livestock and poultry that we then consume, mm -hmm. Uh, really, we can extend that discussion to the fact that glyphosate has entered into our, our foods and works it is a patented uh, antibacterial. And the reason it was uh, approved and allowed in our food is because uh, when it was manufactured, they demonstrated, look, it only has these effects in terms of interrupting the production of aromatic amino acids, the shikimate pathway yeah. from carbohydrate precursors. It only happens in plants, and in bacteria. So what does Andrew need to worry about? Absolutely nothing. You're not a plant, you're not a bacterium, right? Guess well, what? you're 10 <laughs> times more bacterium than you are who you think you yeah, are. Yeah. So therefore, that discussion is absolutely germane as it relates to humans and our health and is now beginning to come into the spotlight. So now to treatment. You're in clinic, you're helping people all the time with neurological disorders. What sort of things do you institute um, with them apart from aerobic exercise and the, the lifestyle changes with regards to breathing, breathing, stress, love, music. What practical physical things do you tell them about with regards to diet and maybe some judicial use of supplements? Uh, well, even beyond that, maybe some judicial use of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Uh, you know, for example, uh, symptom management in a Parkinson's patient is something that we need to do. We need to control their rigidity. We need to consider what we can do to control tremor. Uh, and those things are important. So we're grateful that we have symptomatic measurement, but that's the tip of the iceberg. We've got to deal with a much bigger problem that's existing below the waterline. And that's the focus. So the first thing is really to concentrate on eliminating those issues that are threatening the microbiome. Why are we so focused on the microbiome? Because the microbiome plays the pivotal role in regulating the, the permeability of the gut lining. We are focused on the permeability of the gut lining because that is regulating the set point of inflammation and immunity in the entire human body. So I, as a neurologist, am focusing on this one cell layer uh, of epithelium in the gut 
to leverage that uh, importance in terms of this distant organ, the brain. And, you know, it's time that we understand that there's a lot going on in the body from an integrative perspective, that the gut isn't over here and the brain is over there. They're communicating. And the brain, as you mentioned, via cortisol and other uh, issues, is absolutely influencing gut function and even permeability moment to moment. Cortisol uh, that uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, when it's, uh, you know, secreted during stress, uh, does break down uh, these tight junctions mm -hmm. in some degree and also significantly changes uh, the array, the complexity, the diversity of organisms living within the gut. Uh, it also stimulates the production of cytokines, which then feed back and have a, uh, a negative effect upon the brain. And also those cytokines further damage uh, the tight junctions and lead to further permeability. We set up a feed-forward cycle because what we understand with respect to cortisol is it ultimately is toxic uh, in terms of the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. So these prolonged elevations of cortisol from stress ultimately prove damaging to the brain's memory center. And uh, even more compelling is the understanding now uh, from Dr. Robert Sapolsky, uh, who has demonstrated that the, the brain's memory center, in addition to triaging our, our thoughts and memories and retrieving them, actually serves as a suprahypothalamic break. What does that mean? It means the hippocampus is controlling how the hypothalamus uh, then stimulates the pituitary that, pituitary that then stimulates the adrenal gland. Mm. As we damage the hippocampus, we're releasing the hypothalamus to secrete more and more cortisol that ultimately feeds back again to the hippocampus, damaging it, making the situation a feed-forward cascade. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit complicated, but it is a dramatic uh, example of tying the gut and the brain together. Uh, it is also, I think, a dramatic example of how we need to look upon things like cortisol through two lenses of both being um, salubrious and being insalubrious. What do I mean by that? Low levels of cortisol help you actually consolidate an event in terms of a memory. But high levels of cortisol are, you know, specifically detrimental. So uh, it, it's not good to say, well, cortisol is bad. Cortisol is good. It's obviously there. In a four but there's a fluctuation, not a static thing. That's right. Thing. That's so, exactly right. So I know this is going to be an extremely piece of string question, particularly... A piece uh, of string question, <laughs> I don't know what how, that means. How long is a piece of string? <laughs> yeah. Because it's going to be determined by the exact presentation of that patient at that point right. um, in your surgery. But what sorts of hints can you give um, with regards to tests that you might do at baseline and further down the track to measure success of treatment? Well, uh, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, I measure success by clinical response. I am not uh, vested in proving an improvement in a laboratory study. You know, that said, I'd like the A1C to come down. I'd like markers of free radical mediated stress, uh, 8-OHDG, for example, uh, to come down, uh, oxidate, oxidative damage to uh, lipoproteins to be reduced. Uh, I'd like um, neurocognitive function to be uh, demonstrated improving as opposed to just having a patient say, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm doing better, yeah. um, homocysteine, et cetera. I think those are valuable. Uh, but really what is most important is the patient saying, 
I'm balancing my checkbook now. Um, uh, I'm able to walk three blocks or whatever that metric may be, which was the reason you saw that person in the first place. That's really most valuable. Yeah, the things that they couldn't do before yep. that they'd lost. That is most valuable. So I have to ask the devil's advocate question. Okay. Is wheat bad for everybody? Yes. Let me make, can I explain? Please. Uh, and, and I'm not anti-wheat industry, uh, but uh, you know, wheat products are high sources of carbohydrate, and that's not a good thing for your health. Uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano has demonstrated that uh, gluten, and specifically the gliadin, uh, does increase gut permeability in all humans. Now, all humans may not have clinical manifestations of that, and therefore he's been a bit restrictive in saying that everyone should go gluten-free. I'm not of that opinion. I think that if there is an increased gut permeability and therefore the possibility of increased inflammation, et cetera, that we have to look at every possible straw on the camel's back uh, to create the most healthful recommendations and ultimately, you know, it's up to people to decide. But I think that represents a clear and present danger. It is a, a, an antigenic challenge for which humans have never adapted. One more question. Okay. <laughs> One more question. In regards to the SAD, the standard American diet or the standard Australian diet, whichever you choose, oh, like wheat is a, a staple. How do we replace that in the general population? We as natural health practitioners know about this stuff. Mrs. Jones, who just came down with MS or, or came in with um, non-gluten wheat sensitivity um, or other autoimmune conditions, they're not so versed in dietary advice. How do we chaperone them through and what, what alternatives can we give them? Well, uh, how do we chaperone them through? Again, by teaching and uh, by developing relationships with your patient of trust, uh, of being on the same side of these arguments. You know, I. I not infrequently explain to uh, patients, I just lost my father of Alzheimer's disease and I'm probably at great risk because of that inheritance issue. What am I doing? I'm exercising as frequently as I can. I'm on a, you know, I try to avoid gluten and then cut my carbs and eat fat and do all the right things. And that said, when we are on the same side of an argument, it tends to draw uh, people in. But beyond that, I do as much media as I possibly can. I write books like Grain Brain and explain with 400 peer-reviewed references why it is uh, that I make these claims. And ultimately, it's going to be up to individuals to uh, either succumb to the notion that you can live your life come what may and hope that uh, modern pharmaceuticals are gonna pull you out of your mess. Uh, that isn't happening. It really isn't happening while uh, the the treatment of diabetes regulates the blood sugar, it doesn't get rid of your diabetes, and yet you likely can, type two diabetes, uh, get back to a place of not requiring medication if you engage in the lifestyle changes that so many are talking about. And by the same token, we don't have treatment for Alzheimer's, and yet we know that the lifestyle choices that we are discussing uh, are valid, and are, are valid by referencing peer-reviewed medical journals. Uh, but, you know, people tend to be down on what they're not up on. So there is still a very significant pushback from mainstream medicine who wants to embrace the notion of one disease, one drug. You say hypertension, I say X. You say Alzheimer's, I say Y. There isn't a Y. But Alzheimer's is preventable, and that's our mission. So how do you stop Mrs. Jones from going for that white fluffy loaf? It's her decision. Yeah. 
And uh, what alternatives do you give them? What, what, oh, well, you know, we work closely with the dietitian, and we walk people through what your day should look like. Uh, by and large, you should be eating less food, uh, and you should be eating, dare I say, more fat. And uh, and people end up with their head spinning. But my last five doctors have said I need to be choosing low-fat or no-fat foods and eating more complex carbohydrates like grains. And you know, I explained, look, you've been doing that and you're still gaining weight and you're still, your inflammatory markers are elevated, your joints still hurt, you can barely walk around the block now. And face it, you know, you've got a bad pedigree, your father had Alzheimer's or whatever it may be. You know, try to be as impactful as, as possible. But I think uh, at the beginning of the day, these people are seeing integrative practitioners because they've had enough of mainstream and it's left them empty handed. Dr. David Perlmutter, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I could go in so many different directions and ask you so many different questions, but of course that would end up being a lecture in which people really need to attend to learn what you've um, imparted to us today in, in your lecture at the symposium. Great. And indeed practitioners should be reading your books so that they can get the real message, um, both for themselves, but also to be able to give to their patients. Thank you so much oh, for joining us today. Excellent interview, I sure appreciate it. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook, or Twitter 